just a privilege to uh, be with you all this morning. It's uh, nice seeing uh, the house getting fuller. And uh, just thank you for being here. Those of you that are joining us online, just want to ask that God's blessing will rest on you as well. And we just trust that God uh, would take the things that we have sung this morning, and as we sing them, they become for us verified, validated by the work of the Spirit, and pray that the same will happen as the Word of God goes forth this morning. Uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're picking up in verse 21. And uh, for some of you that don't, oh, yeah, and the children are being dismissed to junior church. You guys thought my wife was angry with me, right? She probably has just cause for that attitude, but right now that's not the case. Uh, but I, I did want to say this just for clarification for those of you that don't know Megan, and I'm not going to try to pronounce her last name because I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, Lafferty? Rafferty. Raff, Rafferty. Okay. So anyhow, if you don't know who Megan is, uh, we've announced that she's getting married, but she is the lady that's been the director of the Hoving Home since they developed their uh, location in New Jersey. So uh, they are going to miss her, I am sure, and uh, we will miss you as well, Megan. You've been a great blessing to us as a church family. And uh, I was telling Megan this morning, the people that work in that context have my complete and profoundest respect for the sacrifices that they're willing to make and for the work that God is doing through them. I'm sure the joy far outweighs the sacrifice as it does in the work of God. So Mark 4 verse 21, it says this. He said to them, do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear. He continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants. With such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them. As much as they could understood, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. Now, that passage is fascinating. It contains some things that to us are familiar. It contains some things that you're looking at me right now saying, I hope you can help us a little bit. There's parts of it that I I would use the word cryptic. Okay, there, there's little pieces of broader context that need to be kind of understood in order for us to kind of grasp exactly what Jesus is saying. And I'm going to do my best by the work of the Spirit to bring that clarity for you this morning. I am not promising 100% clarity, okay? But I am hoping that you will go away with a little bit of a better understanding of what this work of Christ at the beginning of his public ministry, this inbreaking of the kingdom, I want you to hopefully understand a little bit more fully what that means. Now, uh, I, I don't say this often publicly, and you'll understand why, okay? I'm an Eagles fan, okay? I do not have the hat, I don't have the t-shirt, I don't have the bumper sticker. I don't have a lot of confidence. Uh, kind of watch what's going on, and... Uh, I, I will not tell you that I'm a person of hope. I, I wish, but I can't say I hope. Uh, 
as a loyal fan, I am uh, easily discouraged by what I see. Okay, so that seeing gives information. That information leads to a conclusion. I don't think this ends well. Okay? The disciples of Jesus are watching his public ministry. What they are seeing early on is a fairly dramatic level of opposition. It it comes out in the text that Doug spoke to us last Sunday morning, the beginning of chapter 4, the sowing of the seed. Three out of the four seeds incur trouble. There is satanic attack, seed taken away. There is trials, tribulations, pressure against, and it fades away. And then there is this allure of temporal things that pulls people away from permanent, eternal things. And then there is the seed that flourishes, 40, 60, and 100 fold. And if I'm the disciples, I'm looking at that saying, okay, there, there's hope there, but there's a lot there that is of concern. I mean, certainly we can look back to Mark chapter 3 and verse 6 and see that in the face of clear, verifiable, bona fide, miraculous activity, there is opposition with the threat of death. And that, for the, for those that have committed to following Christ, that has to be at least perplexing and at some level discouraging and the thought must run through their mind. I am not sure that this ends well. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's kind of where you end up as you read through this text. There's, it's a tense portion of scripture. So here's the question. Why does Jesus give them these analogies and parables at this time? And I believe that the, I believe that the purpose of these texts, it, it aims to encourage the followers of Christ. He wants them to know that for the minority position seed, it yielded 40, 60, 100 fold. Here's the truth. If I knew a financial advisor who could produce 40, 60, 100 fold, I would in great hope go running to him if I could validate the outcomes. And all of us would. So Jesus has kind of dropped in for the disciples a picture of hope that in the midst of the 75% picture, there's opposition and there's fading away and there's failing and satanic opposition. Yet in the good seed, in good soil, there is an abundance that I would say in some ways overwhelms the negative thinking. So that the sowing continues and that the faithfulness of the disciples is at some level encouraged. I believe this text aims to encourage the followers of Christ to take willing yet timid followers and to affect their outlook by simple illustrations. He's, he's trying to give them a greater clarity of what it is that they have been called to. The parables provide unique insights, particularly the ones used here. They provide unique insights and perspectives that aim to change how we respond to difficult circumstances, how we respond to things aren't looking so good. It advises us, it encourages us to help us to see that in spite of serious opposition and difficulties and apparent delays, the plan and purpose of God is progressing and at the end of the day, though it is opposed, it will not be thwarted. So what's the message? Look at what you see, but here's the promise. It does end well. It does end well and that aims to bring hope and encouragement to the disciples. So here's the way, here's the way the text breaks down. Or you have the story of the lamp and the story of the measures. I'm taking them and understanding them to be warnings to the religious establishment, which is weighing and rejecting Jesus. That's the cause for concern for the disciples, right? That we're not getting traction. Okay? I was looking three weeks ago at a stat sheet from when this church started. Okay, I was getting the notebook of church papers together for Dave Mercer, uh, trying to get everything, all our, all our paperwork in its right place, right? I read through that sheet. Tim Durier uh, is either in here or out there. Tim will remember, okay, because my home church that was sponsoring us asked us, hey, just keep a record of what's going on, you know, number of people that attend, etc. So we did. And I, 
I, I know now why I never wanted to see that sheet. It was not encouraging. Okay, there was concern and anxiousness along with great hope of what God would do. Okay, that's the nature of the Christian life. So let's, let's look at these accounts, the purchase of the lamp and the measure, and then we'll look at the, what is the hopeful side of this text in terms of the soil and the mustard seed. So 21 to 23 talks about why you buy a lamp. Jesus asked a simple question. He says, why do you purchase a lamp? And the lamp in the ancient world would be a clay dish, a handle on one end, a spout with a hole on the other end. Inside of that clay dish, about that size, you would put oil. The wick would go into the oil, come out the end, and you would light the end of the wick. And Jesus is basically saying to his disciples, what's the purpose of that? To what end do you light a lamp? Okay, now that's on the face should be very obvious, right? So Jesus says, do you do it to conceal? Do you buy a lamp, light it, and put it under a bushel basket or under the bed? It's on the face ridiculous. It demands an answer. No, that's not what you do. But instead, Jesus says, you place it on a lamp stand, which would either be a rock protruding out of the side wall of of an ancient house in Palestine or on some type of a stand that the person may have fabricated. He says, instead, you put it on its stand for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. Whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So the thrust of this first picture is that Jesus came as the light of the world, right? He'll later just say to the disciples, I am the light of the world. He will pass that torch to them, figuratively speaking. In Mark 5, you are the light of the world. You've come to expose, to make known. What is it that Jesus came to make known? The ultimate plans and purposes of God, which in the power of God will triumph. Jesus came as a light to reveal, to expose the deeply distorted and selfish establishment of religion in his day and to point people to true hope through his saving work on the cross. So when Jesus comes for for the religious establishment that was lost in darkness, the bright light of Christ causes them to do what? To cover their eyes and turn away. They reject the work that Christ is doing. But the purpose of the light is to expose, to reveal, to make truth open and understandable. I think we would simply say that if someone buys a lamp and puts it under a bushel basket or hides it under a bed, in some sense we would say that's absurd. That is not a, an appropriate response to light. So then we would say that the response of the religious establishment in Mark chapter 3 verse 6 They see the bona fide miracles of Christ, the light of the kingdom that is emerging from the words and works of Jesus. And what do they do? They go like this. They hide the light. They cover it and refuse to be exposed by it. So the first thought is this. It is absurd to reject the words of Christ, the truth that is exposed by the miracles and teachings of Jesus. But that word, when it is received by a believing heart, will flourish and bring about phenomenal and beautiful change. To see in this context is to be blessed. And that's why Jesus will say, be careful how you listen. Make sure that when you hear the encouragement to yield to the light, to open your eyes, to be exposed by it, and to be saved by what it came to accomplish. Right? When you do that, there is hope. So that's the first picture. You buy a lamp to expose. If you respond properly to the exposure, it will bring hope in your life. If you turn away from it, you have no benefit from it. Verse 24 and 25. It says, consider carefully what you hear. So to this audience listening, he says, consider carefully. This is in the present tense, which means there is a perpetual call to be self-evaluating in that light. 
Think about what it's saying about you. Be honest in terms of what it says about you and how you, we use these terms, how you measure up. Right? So this text focuses on this idea of listening diligently and then he cautions them. And I think this is powerful. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and more. The religious establishment has done what? They've measured the life of Christ, his empathy for the sick, his love for sinners, and they have assessed that life of Jesus. And their measurement says what? I don't want anything to do with him. So they, by their measure, reject what Christ is doing. Okay? He, so he, he, he then says the opposite is true. Look at what it says next. It says, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away. Now that's a difficult saying, right? The ones that were insiders at the time of Christ were those in the religious establishment. They had the word of God, the law, the prophets. They had the lineage, the privilege, right, of being Jewish in terms of their background. That's what they had. Jesus comes on the scene as the one to whom all of that points. They misunderstand the direction in which Jesus is pointing and categorically do what? We want nothing to do with this man. Later they will say, crucify him. Do away with him. That's stunning. And here's what Jesus is saying. And he's, he's, he's saying it a little in a little bit of a veiled way, but clear way for the disciples. He's saying, listen carefully. Diligent hearing results in greater benefit. If you listen to the words of Christ and yield to the hard truth that he is proclaiming, even though it may change the direction of your life, it yields to and leads to a great harvest. But for those that turn away from it, That in hard-hearted ways reject it because they like their life the way it is. They like their status. They like the applause. Jesus says even what they have will be taken away. And for the disciples, he's giving them a promise, I think, in in, in an interesting way here. That he is promising them the full hope of the kingdom of God. The warning is invitation. There's a, an illustration of this, I believe, in John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus? The Bible says Nicodemus was a leader of the Jews. He was a scribe. He was someone who was earnest in his understanding of biblical truth. He sees what Christ is doing, and his eyes are looking at the light. He's not turning away. He's not turning his back. He's not rejecting. He comes to Jesus at night, and he says... Teacher, we know that you have come from God, meaning I have assessed, I have measured you according to the Old Testament scriptures. And the conclusion is undeniable. You are from God. Why, Nicodemus? Because no one, Nicodemus says, can do the things that you are doing unless God is with him. Okay, do you understand the connection? Nicodemus sees everything that all the other religious establishment people saw. But he continues to watch and measure according to biblical truth. And he comes to the right conclusion. There is something unique and compelling about Jesus that requires a decision on the part of the human heart. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, you're not far from the kingdom. But you can't enter the kingdom unless you are born by the Spirit. Which ultimately Jesus promises early on in Mark chapter 1. John says this, right? John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water. The one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, one is a physical work, an initiatory work. One is a complete work of regeneration and change. Nicodemus saw the work of God in the context of many who were rejecting it, Nicodemus properly assesses and receives. And when you come to the end of Jesus' life, after the crucifixion, hanging on the cross, you find that it is a man named Nicodemus who comes to take down his body. Nicodemus rightly measured. And to have Christ for Nicodemus was to have everything. 
For the Pharisees, what did they want? They wanted to cling to the, to the temporal. John chapter 12 is a fascinating text. It says after Jesus has been doing all of these miracles and he's moving into the last week of his life, John 12 says this. It says many of the leaders believed in him. They gave assent to the fact that there was something about Jesus that was unique. They believed in him, but they would not confess him publicly because they loved the praise of men. It's a fascinating statement. They had a measure. They measured the life of Christ, the work of Christ, and concluded that he was worthy of belief, but would not believe him because they liked this approval more than the approval of God himself. That, to me, is one of the most horrific and sad texts in the New Testament. And I think it's what's going on here. They're measuring Jesus, and they're concluding he's unworthy. The disciples are measuring Jesus with great sacrifice, but in the end, get it all. It reminds me of the the parable of the pearl of great price. Right, A man's walking through a field. He stumbles across a treasure. He recognizes that it is more valuable than anything else. He reburies it, goes and sells everything he has, and buys that field. Why? To make such a sacrifice, to receive such a gain, is utterly logical. It makes perfect sense to give up everything when you find the one, the thing, the kingdom of greatest value. So so this text starts with a warning. It's a warning to the religious establishment. When the light shines, believe what you see. Search it out. Seek it out. Go before God. And when you begin to assess what's there, be sure that you use an appropriate measure so that you come to an accurate conclusion about the person and work of Christ. Because the one that has the little bit and clings to it, in the end, loses it all. The one who is sacrificing everything, in the end, gets it all. Now that's contrary to human thinking, right? So we, we're, we're going to process that, we're going to wrestle with it, and going to say that's cryptic. Because it, it doesn't make sense to us. But to me, this is unbelievably hopeful for the disciples. Because implied in what Jesus is saying... Uh, these who, who don't have much, who are on the outside, end up on the inside and get everything in relationship to the work of Jesus. Now, in the transition to the next two texts, okay, the next two verses, the question becomes this, how will the work of God succeed? Okay, so, so, so you find this tension in the religious establishment. You find that it is working in decided opposition to the personal work of Christ to the point that they have rejected him and are desiring to end his life. My assumption is this. The disciples of Jesus are aware of what's going on. They are not naive to the power and evil of the religious establishment of Jesus' day. They have experienced its rejection. They know what it is to stand on the outside. Now in Christ, they find themselves on the inside. How will Jesus, in in, in the face of this utter rejection of the light by this false measure, where will they find hope and confidence that they're on the right path? Here's the way Jesus deals with with them. First question he asks is, how does the work of God advance and succeed. Okay, I'm putting those words into this picture. Jesus says this, verse 26. He also said, and that implies this need to listen, verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He also said, in that context of the call to listen, the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts his sickle in because the harvest has come. Now, what is this profoundly common story? Especially in an agrarian culture like the ancient world. What, why would Jesus, 
illustrate this greatest movement of all time in eternity, why would he illustrate that through such a pedestrian example of what common people do? And I think when I say it that way, I answer the question. Jesus Christ has not come for the high and exalted. Jesus Christ has come for the common, for the average, for the normal. And so he, he, he picks up an illustration to help them, commoners, to understand how glorious the work of God is and exactly how it works. And he, so he picks up what would be for them the most familiar analogy or metaphor. So verse 26, the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. It's, it's like a planter. Okay, and it's very simple picture. Someone takes seeds and they put them in the ground. They take seeds and they put them in the ground. Okay, common. Now here's what it, here's what I think of one lovely saying: the kingdom of God is driven by human agency, meaning there are actual people who are involved in the work that God is doing to advance the cause, but they are of the most common sort. This farmer prepares the soil, plants, and then he sleeps. I live on Route 57, okay? Uh, I was talking to a farmer in Houston, Texas, five years ago. We were down there for the Houston Rodeo when my daughter and son-in-law lived there. Sitting beside this guy watching a cattle auction, or cattle judging. I don't, it wasn't an auction. They were actually judging these, this cattle. Sitting beside this guy, and I said, hey, where are you from? He was, I never engage with people in public, Okay. Where are you from? I am from, I'm from just outside of Dallas. Oh, okay. He said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from, actually from New Jersey. He says, well, what, where in New Jersey? I said, have you ever heard of Warren County? He goes, have you ever heard of Warren County loom? And I'm like, what world is that? Well, it's a term for soil. He said, do you know that you live in the most productive valley in the country for corn? Meaning that the corn produced per acre in Warren Valley, is the highest in the country. I came back and I had to figure that out. I verified it with Tim Matthews, verified it with Sam Santini, who's my neighbor, lives about a mile behind me. He has the most productive piece of soil in the country in terms of bushels per acre. Okay, so I ride this valley. Here's what I notice. Every spring, there's a habitual activity. There's the plowing of the ground, there's the sowing of the seed, whatever cultivating and fertile, all that stuff they do, and then they disappear. And nothing changed in the soil. You drive by after all that work, and what do you see? Nothing. And then, all by itself, in the proper God-given context... The design of God explodes in a seed, it sprouts, it sticks up its head, it grows, corn forms on it, soybean forms on it, this new stuff called argum forms on it, okay? And, and it's, it's human agency in the beginning, but it is, it is divine agency after he sows, while he sleeps, God does what I cannot do. Which means this, the full outworking of God's purposes on my life and the aims and purposes that God has for my life are not utterly dependent upon my activity. Yet my activity is what? It's an essential part of what's happening, but it is not the most important part of what's happening. Why does Jesus say that to the disciples? He wants them to understand that they have been called to sow seed, to shine light. As they properly assess the person of Christ. And as they do that, God will do what God does. To me, that is profoundly encouraging. Because sometimes we think that it's up to us to get it to happen. Human agency is indispensable, but growth is not the result of human effort. The farmer puts a seed in the ground. He covers it up. He goes and he lays down. And something happens that he can never take credit for. It sprouts and it grows. Now, here's the struggle that farmers have. Uh, backyard farmers, like myself. I remember a couple times we planted peas. 
And peas are the first thing you plant. You plant them in April because they're pretty, pretty hardy. They can sustain uh, some of the colder temperatures. Every time I did it, which I finally stopped, every time I did it, I, I, I'd go out in the morning and I'd look. Though it was sunny and warm yesterday, certainly something should be coming up. And guess what would happen? Nothing's happening. So what would I do? I'd start digging. Because I am, I am insatiably curious. Is there a little tail on that seed? Because if there's a tail, something good's going to happen. Okay? And there was, there, if you're impatient, you need to read this parable. Because this parable tells you how the growth takes place, right? Whether he, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, that is apart from his effort, the seed sprouts unseen and then it begins to grow. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head and then harvest. Okay, and, and what is Jesus saying to the disciples? You have your role. But the outcome is not dependent upon you. And we all should say, God, thank you. I know my weaknesses too well to think that anything good could ever come out of my effort alone. And this text aims to give us hope. It aims to give hope to the disciples that the whole thing doesn't rest on your shoulders. You're like a farmer. You go out and you do the very pedestrian task of sowing seed. And you cover it up. And you go do what you do. And God does what God does. With your average effort. He advances the cause that you could never advance on your own. And he gives you the privilege of being an indispensable part of this amazing picture. Of what God is doing. And I think for the disciples, in the midst of the the overwhelming assaults that they, they sense, they feel it in the air around them. The hatred of the religious establishment. Threats against Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you're just planners. You're just planners. Plant faithfully and watch what I do through your most basic and average efforts. James 5 says this, and I think James is reflecting on this teaching of Christ. He says, be patient then, brothers. Meaning, relax. Stay faithful, but relax until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. You also be patient until the coming of the Lord. Meaning the fullness of the kingdom is not coming out of human effort or out of elections. It comes by the hand of God. And that's why we can sit back at night and genuinely sleep. Because we know that the things that concern us, the, the change in someone's heart is not ultimately dependent upon my effort. My part, indispensable. Because that's the way God designed it. The outcome is on God. And for the disciples, I think they would sit back and say, oh, I feel better now. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, Paul chastises the church in Corinth because some of the people in the church were saying, I am of Paul, I'm from Peter, I'm Apollos, I'm with this one, I'm with that one. Focus on what? Human efforts. They perceived or thought that one was more effective, therefore the outcome would be better if I attach my allegiance to this one. And there was that kind of infighting that Paul simply calls kind of ugly human territory in the church in Corinth. He then says this, what after all is Apollos? And the what is neuter? What instrument, what tool is Apollos? What tool is Paul? Here's what Paul says. Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each his task. And here's what Paul says. I planted, Apollos watered. And I love this next phrase. God made it grow. So I think in James 5, I think in 1 Corinthians 3, the apostles are driving this theme of Christ, this, this theme of the indispensability of human effort. But in the grand scheme of things, it is God that wins the day. And that is said to inspire confidence and to give hope that people are looking at the way things appear and thinking, I don't know if it turns out well. This text aims to say it turns out better than you could ever imagine. Look at this next section. 
Jesus says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Okay, in other words, what would be an adequate picture, metaphor, or analogy to understand the kingdom of God? And this is short and sweet and powerful. He says this, he says, it's like a mustard seed. Now, I've held mustard seeds in my hand. And when the wind blew, they were gone. Okay, this was uh, in Israel, 1986. Doug and I and, and my wife were there. And we found a mustard plant. And they had these little things, and you squeeze them. You break them up, and the seeds fall out. And literally like sand. Now, we could spend a whole lot of time comparing it to many, many different things. And we're wasting our time. Because the point of this text is not how big the mustard seed is. The point of the text is what it produces. Okay, notice what Jesus says. It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. Yet when planted, that is the task that we have, right? To distribute. When it's planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants. With such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Okay, now that, that sets it apart from other herbs or other plants of this kind. And the idea here is that the birds are literally building nests in this herb. Now you could talk to Louise Hyde and find out that there aren't a lot of herbs that grow big enough for a bird to want to nest in it. This one does. Here's the question. How, how amazing was its beginning? And the truth is that its beginning was barely discernible. It was so small, it had the appearance of absolute insignificant, but had contained within it phenomenal potential. Isn't that powerful? Jesus says it's like a mustard seed. But when it's put in the right context, it'll blow your mind what it becomes. Because you would never expect, very simply put, something that big to come out of something that small. Okay, mustard seed bushes tend to grow up to about 10 foot tall. Okay, I can tell you amongst herbs, that's not, that's not common. It's uncommon, it's amazing, it's phenomenal. The implication is this, I think this is the implication for the disciples. Do not make the mistake of underestimating what God can do through your weak efforts. Because let's be honest, let's be honest. Most of our efforts are in fits and starts. Most of us don't run like we're running a marathon. Most of us run like we're running sprints. And then we need a break. And we feel like failures. Jesus is saying to the group of disciples who will struggle, who will argue, who will deny, who will flee. At the end of the day, If you simply do what I called you to do, you will be amazed how God takes your insignificant contribution and multiplies it for his glory and his kingdom to which you belong. Because the one that sacrificed gets it all. The work of God's kingdom in the gospels is not advanced by an impressive team, but by the humble efforts of incredibly average people. And I think these accounts are recorded for the church so that we'll step back out of our fear, look at the big picture and say, okay, God, I believe you can use me. I believe as we sung earlier this morning that you were faithful. These are my concluding thoughts. This text is hopeful and brings relief. It simply tells me this. He uses human agency But at the end of the day, God makes it grow. God makes it grow. I want to say this to you this morning. Do not make the mistake of lionizing people. We live in an age of celebrity. And I learned a term this week, hyper-priest. Okay? Impressive by appearance, well-accomplished, able to attract large crowds. And it is easy To look at that and feel what? Absolutely inadequate. 
but God uses the faithful. I'm thankful in the context of our church family that uh, Doug and James are humble, faithful servants who bring to us the word of God on a regular basis. Because that's what God needs. God needs people that will sow the seed. The kingdom of God is not advanced by marching armies, but by faithful, average servants. Jesus' imagery of lamps, measuring cups, and farmers are lowly and vulnerable, yet in the hand of God, hopeful. So don't be bothered that the, the group is average. Be consumed with what God is able to do. Now, my wife and I moved to this town 31 years ago. I was reflecting on how I felt. So here's, here's what came to mind. I got a little PTSD. Okay? little remembering of the fear of stepping out and stepping away from a church I had known my entire life. Doug and I had the privilege of going up in a strong church that was very committed to church planning. And so there's pressure when you come out of the home office and all eyes are on you because you're, I think we were about the 101st or second church that my home church planted. Okay? So for me, there was a lot of fear, a lot of a sense of inadequacy, a lot of timidity, and a lot of weakness. I remember when we started, early on, I said, okay, we're going to uh, go through the town and hand out flyers from the church. Now, I, I grew up in a, in a retail environment, so I'm pretty used to walking up to people, hey, how you doing? Can I tell you that the mornings I would get ready to leave my house and go to another part of the neighborhood to hand out a little leaf from our church, the incredible anxiety... Okay, and I'm admitting this as a man, okay? The sense of fear. And I'm going to tell you, at the end of the day, it wasn't that I doubted God. It, it was that he just wasn't filling the screen as large as he should have been. I was, I was using the wrong measure. I wasn't letting the light be fully exposed. And so there was this sense of fear of failure, of not making it. And I thank God that in these latter years, a massive amount of our progress has been a result of developing this team of preachers within our church family and seeing God take these willing average people to begin to see a more beautiful work emerge and grow. So here's the question that comes to mind. And, and, and let, me, let me say this one other thing. One of the things I did early on, I think it was in 1991, I went to a pastor's conference. Now, keep in mind, I'm in a church that has about 20 people on Sunday morning. So my friend says, hey, you want to go to a pastor's conference? I'm like, yeah, that'll be so encouraging. The church we went to was Willow Creek Church in Chicago, which at that time had 20,000 people attending. Be honest with you, say it out loud. How do you think I felt when I came home from that conference? What do you think? Oh, like a failure. Because then you start comparing yourself to what others have done or what God's done in their field. And you become dissatisfied with your field and fearful that other people might look at it and see it as weak. That's just being honest. Then I went to Saddleback in California, which was 22,000. Like, what are you, stupid? I stopped going to conferences, seriously. I started going to uh, doctor of ministry seminars with Doug to learn how to preach, to learn how to unfold scripture, to do what God had called me to do. He didn't call me to be Willow Creek. He didn't call us to be Saddleback. He called us to be the chapel. And God's going to work in the context of this church through average human vessels to do what he aims to do. And nothing can stop it.
I can't say what I'm thinking because it's not appropriate. Uh, nah, I, can't, I shouldn't say that. But I want to. Now, I'm going to say this, please. So I'm saying it, I'm not sure if I should, okay? Sometimes I think we just need to say, may my fear be damned. May my fear be irrevocably pushed aside. May it go where it came from. Because it's not from God. It's not from God. I'm going to tell you something. Every, I don't know if Doug and James can admit to this. Probably James and I are more similar than Doug. Doug's the proverbial extrovert in front of people all the time. Greatly used of God, by the way, at Lancaster Bible College, which he would never tell us, but his wife has let me know that. Doug is one of their favorite teachers out there in the Bible department, which I am not surprised by. I sat under Doug's teaching. Every Sunday I come to church, when I'm preaching, there is this... Are you going to think, okay, you've been at this 31 years, get over it. Okay? I don't know if I want to get over it. There's this nagging sense of inadequacy that can only be resolved at the throne of grace. That, just a nagging sense that can only be resolved by going before God before you get up and say, God, I'm here. I'm surrendered. I'm available. Don't know why you use me. Don't know how you could. But you do. And I say that to all of you so that we all resonate with the Apostle Paul, who we would all look at Paul and say, there's the guy. Here's what Paul said. When I came to you, brothers, church in Corinth, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God. That is the word, right? This text is all about the word is the seed. It goes, it transforms and changes. Paul says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God. The word about what God is doing. For I resolved to know nothing among you but the Savior and him crucified. That is not a victory message. But it is a saving message. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you but that which to the Gentiles was, was weakness and to the, I'm forgetting the other category. Well, the other, to the other people was foolishness. Here's what Paul said. I came to you, listen, I came to you in fear and trembling. This is years down the road. This is Paul moving towards the end of his apostolic experience. He's ready to cut the strings of his tent and go home to be with God. And he says, I came to you in fear and trembling. My message was not with persuasive words of a hyper priest, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. It was infused by God himself. The Spirit of God working through a weak human vessel to do something that the vessel could never do alone, yet the vessel was indispensable. Folks, that's the message of this text. Yeah, the task, the calling to be God's people and to take the word and to sow it around. Yeah, we get nervous, we get butterflies. I do every time. But do it. And watch what God will do with your weak effort. Be faithful in planting. And if it helps you, think of the person that God used to draw you to know Christ. Think about who God used to bring you to Christ. I'm going to guess for most of you, true of my personal story, it was the most modest, humble, faithful servant of God. So if God could use them, Doesn't that give you some hope that he can use you? And then after you've sown the seed, be faithful. Mom and dad praying for a son or daughter who has wandered for years. Trust God to make it grow. Continue to faithfully plant the seed. Just 
Be faithful before God. Have integrity. Live in purity. Be a vessel that God can use. Don't let anything dim the light. And then stop. Don't drive people nuts. Sow the seed. And step back. Go to bed. Take a nap. And one day, by the grace of God, he will make it grow. That gives me hope. As I stand before you to do what God's called me to do in whatever capacity and level I do it at, you decide, okay? doesn't really matter. I mean, I think it does, but it doesn't really matter. God makes it grow. And that gives hope to the disciples under this tidal wave of pressure that will end in, death, in the death of their Savior. On the other side of that wave, there stands a cross and there stands an empty tomb. Jesus has overcome. And the one that drives the message of the gospel through the work of his spirit is still at work. John says, I baptized you with water. That's the human effort. But one is coming who will baptize you with the spirit. And when he does, your life will never be the same. If you're here this morning and you've been hearing the seed, it's been sown into your life, but you've been hard-hearted, you've been resisting. I want to encourage you this morning. Turn to Jesus. Say, Jesus, forgive my Pharisaic religious resistance to your truth. Change my heart. The Bible says, whoever calls with a broken, repentant heart upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, here's how I want you to go this morning. I want you to go with hope that my meager efforts, fits and starts, can be used by God who makes it grow. If you've heard the word and you've never trusted Christ, I want to encourage you at the end of the service, as I pray, come up here. Kneel at the altar and ask God to start something in your heart that will change the world around you for his glory and will give you hope and a future. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, I feel like in those first two sections, we kind of, maybe not as clear as I would like to be, but I think your word comes together in our hearts by the Spirit as we hear it. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you will make it true for us, that you will cause it to bear fruit in us as we abide in you, Lord Jesus. God, we acknowledge our fears, and may they be sent to where they came from. And may we walk in faith in the power that you provide, knowing that we are indispensable, but the work's not all dependent on us. Use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' powerful, holy, and precious name. Amen. If you have a prayer need this morning, you want to come up uh, as people are leaving, please feel free to come up. A couple of us will be up here to pray with you. And uh, God bless you as you go into this week.